Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Most merciful Father, we have already sung the gospel this morning. You have put those words already into our mouths. Lord, would you give us the courage and the conviction to not just speak good news, but to believe and to live the good news in our lives this morning. God, I thank you for your mercy to me, and I ask that you would be merciful to me as I speak. Would you be merciful to us as we hear? Would you help us to have soft hearts and not hard hearts, God? Would you, would you exchange the truth of God for the lies that we hold to this morning? Only you can do that, God, and we ask you to do that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If this is your first time at Christ Church, we are continuing our summer series on Christian anthropology. Surprise, surprise. What is Christian anthropology? It's simply answering the question, what does it mean to be human? A few weeks ago, I preached two sermons about humanity's central need. And that central need is to be restored in relationship and humility underneath God. So first, God restores us to humble relationship to him. And then he begins the work of reorienting us to one another in love. This is love God and love neighbor, right? It, another Christian, maybe kind of cliche way to say that is Christ restores our vertical orientation to God first, and now we are considering one way in which Jesus restores our horizontal orientation to each other. Here's the most plain statement that I could ever say. We are not at peace with one another as human beings. We build walls, border walls, we break down walls, and neither strategy removes the hostility. Two weeks ago, Father Ben preached about what Chesterton called the most empirically verifiable Christian doctrine, original sin. And basically, the summary of that is we are all a mess uh, original sin, as Rosario Butterfield says, distorts us at the deepest level. This fact can be an overwhelming idea, but that is not its intent. Original sin is not meant to shame anyone. Rather, the doctrine of original sin is the most democratizing idea in all human history. It means that we are all in the same boat, and if we are in Christ, no pattern or sin or brokenness defines us. In other words, we are all on level ground at the foot of the cross. Today, we're going to look at one aspect of our present sinful condition, human sexuality. Sin and sexuality go together like peanut butter and chocolate. As with every sin... We have a problem of hypocrisy, especially concerning sexual sin. If the Episcopal Church 
has given pride of place to unrestrained sexuality, then we often fall into the trap of singling out other people's sins. Or, we avoid the discussions of sexuality altogether for fear that we might have to say something. But what do we say? We need to be clear, not just that we are all sinners, but that we are all sexual sinners. You and I are in need of a general reorientation to God and to each other, but without question, you and I are in desperate need of a sexual reorientation. The Bible's teaching on sexuality, as C.S. Lewis says, is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts Either Christianity is wrong, or our sexual instinct has gone wrong. It's one or the other. So this morning, I simply want to tell the story, God's story of human sexuality. But before we get into the story, I have one more point of introduction. We need to consider, as we did a few weeks ago, our disposition to the story. Okay, What, what is our what is our what is our perspective towards human sexuality? And I believe that we need, as we always do, a humble orientation to human sexuality. Nearly every aspect of this cultural moment tries to force you into a binary position, and a binary opposition. From the right and the left, we are catechized to antagonize. Progressive versus racist, freedom versus Marxism, equality versus bigotry. Define two opposing categories of people and then make a decision. This is American Theology 101. It's not really my fault that I despise your insane belief. It's us versus them. Human sexuality isn't simply a political issue. It's not, it's not a societal issue. Human sexuality is a deeply personal issue. And the gospel does not allow us an us versus them orientation. We are not here to win an argument. So one of the central challenges you will face this morning is to resist interpreting everything I say with an us versus them orientation. Some of you will be tempted to the sin of pride because you hold a conservative, historically orthodox view on human sexuality. Pride is a far more dangerous and insidious sin than sexual perversion. If your first impulse is to say, Amen, that's what's wrong with this country, or so-and-so outside this room really needs to hear this sermon. If that is you, I want to encourage you to pause right now and ask the Spirit of Christ to convict you first, to restore you this morning. See, some of you will be tempted to reject every backwards word I speak this morning as privileged cisgender ignorance. And I want to encourage you to consider that I am not against you. Christian doctrine is not against you. Jesus did not come to make people heterosexual. 
He came to save sinners. He came to raise the dead to life. He came to reorient disoriented people, me first. Romans chapter 2, again. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I take seriously the judgment of God for me. Not my sinful judgment of me. Not your judgment of me. God's righteous judgment for me. And by God's mercy, this sermon comes from that place. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Our Lord said, judge not, lest you be judged. Don't be a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus did not say, don't ever make judgments. That's not possible, just FYI. He said, take seriously God's righteous judgment for yourself first. Do not be an arrogant, impenitent judge. Jesus' teaching on judgment is a rebuke to the pornography addict who quotes Romans 1 on Facebook in condemnation of their gay cousin. Jesus' teaching on judgment is a call to repentance for those who pray on Sunday, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, and then you go home on Sunday afternoon to fantasize on your smartphone. This is Jesus' teaching on judgment. You must repent of your own sin before you can bring good news to sexual sinners. There is no us versus them. We are not here to gather ammunition to use against another group of people. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, consider the log in your own eye before you consider the speck in theirs. We must have a humble and repentant orientation to sexuality, to the story that I'm about to tell. And so here is, here's the main point of the sermon. This is the story of sexuality according to God. Now, like all good stories, there are three parts to the story. <laughs> there's the setup to the story, there's the conflict, and then there's the resolution. So to say this biblically, the setup is God's creative intention, okay? And then, secondly, the conflict is our present fallen experience. This is where we're at in the story, okay? And three, the, the resolution is God's rescuing us from our present experience. So let's get started. The setup. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So why was humanity created male and female? So that we would multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. The glory of God is reflected in human beings, the image bearers of God who reflect God in the world. And so this exponential and peaceful and fulfilling human relationships throughout the world was God's creative intention. But we're all trained to read, I think, Genesis 1.28 like a school assignment. Multiply sounds boring. It sounds like something that rabbits do. But God did not make sex to be a mechanical routine process. And this is evidenced by the multiple thousands of nerve endings in both male and female genitalia. Not to mention the addictive rush of hormones that are released during an orgasm. So we must reject the idea that the God of the Bible is a Victorian prude who won't let us have fun. It was not good that Adam was alone, so God gave Adam and Eve one another, each perfectly suited for one another's pleasure. This is the setup to the story of human sexuality. So what happened next? The conflict. Adam and Eve both rejected the greater pleasure... This is very important. They rejected the greater pleasure given by God for a lesser pleasure. They ate some tasty fruit. I like fruit as much as the next guy. But that is a lesser pleasure. <laughs> that is insane, all right? And this, this is very important. Sin is stupid. You and I do this all the time. So in God's abundant mercy, he cursed the snake and he made Adam and Eve's labor dissatisfying. Their relationship was now contrary to one another. It is merciful to discipline your children when they sin. It is not good to let your kids get away with sin because they're really a good kid. It's no big deal. And that's not merciful because sin is not satisfying. The momentary high of sin is a pleasure-destroying imposter. So, hear, hear this kind of comical but very serious analogy from C.S. Lewis. Suppose you can get a large audience for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. He wrote this in the 40s, so that's how he says it. Um, now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think that there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? You see, you were created for greater pleasures, so God, in his mercy, sends us out to experience the painful result of sin, to experience death, and then the greater satisfaction of repentance and resurrection. 
God desires satisfaction for you far greater than every peddler of erotic, socially acceptable entertainment. So the sexual, the story, the sexual story of the Bible is very consistent. Noah and his family had drunken sex right after being delivered through the flood. Abraham and Sarah believed that they could fulfill God's promise apart from God through sex. Isaac, Israel, Onan, Samson, David, Solomon, nearly every person in the story is sexually disoriented. The law of Moses, both, both the story of the law and the rules, begins and ends with the long lists of all of Israel's sexual sins, with only a passing glance to the sins of their neighbors. Okay? This story is not centrally about all those bad secular people out there. God's people rejected the law given to them. The kings of Israel failed in part because they sought security through sex. Deuteronomy 17, Israel's kings should depend upon God for security. In the ancient world, political allegiances were consummated through the taking of many wives. They disobeyed God. Far from bringing security... Biblical history and over 100 years of scientific anthropological studies both conclude that polygamy breeds violence and division. Monogamy breeds stability and peace. The highest and the lowest in Israelite society sought security through sex and it destroyed them. It destroyed their families and it brought death just as the law said it would. Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, they, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I think this pretty much covers all of us. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the result of Adam and Eve's sin, the result of Israel's story, and the result of humanity's sin is really just a long history of antisocial behavior. To pursue pleasure at all costs is not harmless and fun like most sitcoms portray. We are told that if we just root out all the negative social stigma, if we get rid of all the backwards judgment, then we will be fulfilled and satisfied in our endless pursuit of sexual pleasure. Now, again, let me pause for a second. When I say we, I mean us. Not them. Sex is normalized in every way. Your husband's pornography addiction is normal. Forwarding sexually explicit pictures on text messages is normal. Your best friend's frequenting 
explicit cybersex sites and cutting themselves. Arousal from serially watching explicit television. Rehearsal of forbidden erotic stories in your mind. Finding violent pornography on your parents' cell phone. None of this is natural. Just watch five minutes of any stand-up comedian on Netflix. Take your pick. It's a bunch of painful honesty about serious, serially dissatisfied people. One psychiatrist put it like this, psychologically, addiction uses up desire. It's like a psychic malignancy, sucking our life energy into specific obsessions and compulsions, leaving less and less energy available for real people in real life. For each of these people, the sense of being out of control is overwhelming. For the parents and loved ones, the secondary victims, the shame, guilt, and secret keeping is unbearable. This is our present conflict in the story of human sexuality. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Jesus enters into our story to find a bunch of people who are dangerously cleaned up on the outside. But on the inside, they are full of self-indulgence. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. We are all deep down sexually disordered, we are fixated on sex. But we cannot be saved by sexual purity. We cannot be saved by conservative theology or a Christian definition of marriage. One of the dangers of telling the sexual story of the Bible is that we mistakenly believe that the Bible is fixated on sex. And it's not. We are. Adam, fill the earth and multiply. Abraham, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars. And every one of us, from Abraham to me, we are tempted to fulfill the promise in our own strength. So hear the good news of the gospel, the resolution of the story this morning. The adopted never married, Jesus fulfilled the promise to Abraham. Jesus' offspring are too numerous to count. His house is filled with food and family, adopted sons and daughters, as far as the eye can see. Only Jesus fulfills the task of humanity. Multiply and fill the earth with the glory of God. You are adopted into his family forever to enjoy the greater satisfaction of feasting at the Father's table. Jesus did not accomplish our redemption through the expected biological fulfillment of the promise. Our redemption was accomplished biologically, but not through sex. A real man with a real human body was really tortured 
crucified, died, buried, and physically resurrected, His body is the resolution for our broken bodies. His body is the resolution for our broken bodies. So how are we supposed to respond to this story? How do we respond this morning? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We are invited into Jesus' resolution of the story with one word. Repent. This sermon is not for your neighbor out there. You are sexually disoriented. Reject the fleeting pleasures of incessant arousal and return to Jesus. Repentance isn't something you did a long time ago to join the club. Repentance is for you today. But don't we pray a prayer of confession every Sunday morning? Yes, we do. But true repentance requires more than mere lip service. We must go to war or cut out your eye. Pick your analogy. You either follow Paul and go to war against your sin or you can follow Jesus and cut out your eye. Take your pick. Colossians chapter 3. Put to death what is earthly in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I pummel my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I die every day. The Christian life is a war against the flesh and the devil, not against your neighbor, not even against your greatest enemy. We are not called to fight a culture war. If you are not fighting and confessing your own sin, then you are not following Jesus. Pick your analogy. Follow Paul into war against your own sin, or come to Jesus and ask him to cut out the sin. Matthew chapter 5, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, the, the Bible talks way, way, way more about greed than it talks about sexuality. There are are many thousands of references to wickedness associated with greed, okay? Jesus does not specifically address sexual sin very many times in the Gospels. But, and this is a very important but, nearly every time he does, the consequence is hell. Sexual obedience is a matter of life and death. Confessing your sexual sin will be one of the hardest things that you will ever do. It is very painful, like cutting off your hand. And your sexual sin doesn't just hurt you. You will hurt your family. You will hurt your spouse, your friends, your children, your pastor, your bishop. But it is far better to cut out your eye than for your entire life to fall apart. So follow Jesus in keeping with repentance this morning. Would you pray with me?
Merciful God, would you make us humble? Would you cut out the cancer of sin with genuine repentance this morning? Give us strength for the fight this afternoon as we go to our homes. All this we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand?